Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Meta, a podcast about podcasts, and I'm Peter Wells. I'm just going to get right to it. This is an, an interview I did a couple of weeks ago with Matt Bevan of America, if you're listening, the podcast formerly known as Russia, if you're listening. These podcasts have always been about President Donald Trump or people who are Donald Trump adjacent. And during the introduction to the show, which we recorded, I don't know, like four weeks ago or maybe seven years ago, really hard to tell these days, we joked that it was always tricky recording something about Donald Trump in advance because the guy just makes stories no matter what. Um, and so you're never going to know uh, if something that you're, you're posting is going to be completely out of date by the time it, um, it finally gets out there. Well, uh, this has been a week, and this week has proven that theory very, very well. Of course, we had no idea that Trump was going to eventually get coronavirus, but we do talk about the series, which is a lot more about uh, Trump's presidency. And then we talk about the election, the upcoming election, and, and Matt gives me his thoughts on, on how the election will play out. I think it all still kind of actually works, even with Donald Trump in hospital, but who, who honestly knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Anyway, here's the discussion with Matt Bevan. So we're recording this before uh, the full season comes out. I've listened to the very first episode and I've got to say it really uh, took me back a little bit. Like uh, I, I didn't know what to expect in terms of how, how clearly you would spell out what you think is happening in America. Can you, can you walk me and the listeners through this very first episode? Yeah, so this first episode is about, about Hurricane Maria which hit Puerto Rico in September of 2017, so about eight months into Donald Trump's presidency. And it had come uh, just after two other very serious hurricanes that hit the US mainland, hit Florida and Texas primarily. And kind of it was it was interesting because those two hurricanes, and, and Donald Trump has obviously learned a little bit from history and he's learned that mishandling a natural disaster is extremely bad. It can be catastrophic for you politically, as it was for George W. Bush with Hurricane uh, Katrina in 2015. And he dumped a lot of resources into making sure that these two hurricanes that hit the mainland wouldn't be his Katrina, wouldn't be his Katrina. Absolutely. And then a third one came along in succession, just weeks apart. And one of the things that I, I, I doubt that Donald Trump personally ordered this, but one of the things that the Federal Emergency Management Administration, FEMA in the US, had done is take all of these hurricane supplies off Puerto Rico and provide them to uh, and give it to Florida for that. And so Puerto Rico was left without much by way of hurricane supplies and when their hurricane hit, and it was much worse than the other two, and they were much more vulnerable to serious weather events, uh, it was this spectacular, you know, once in a hundred years catastrophe on Puerto Rico, and they were left with almost nothing to assist with their rebuilding process. And Donald Trump had already been to these two other th- uh, two two other hurricanes, and he'd gone there, and he was well received and praised by local officials for how great a job the federal administration had done. And he arrived in Puerto Rico uh, two weeks after the hurricane and expected to be treated the same way. And already by that stage, there was widespread bureaucratic disaster. And it only just got worse and worse and worse from there. And years, uh, like about a year or so later, they finally released an estimate of the number of people who died in Hurricane Maria, and it was more than twice as many as died in Hurricane Katrina, this hurricane that Donald Trump so desperately wanted to avoid replicating. Mm. It was twice as bad. And Donald Trump responded in his Donald Trump way of saying that's a lie, the death toll is not 3,000, it's 64, the way uh, that we you know, decided it was ages ago, and any allegation that the death toll is higher is a lie by my political opponents to make me look bad. And this was, the interesting thing about this is 
really the first catastrophe of Donald Trump's administration. And he learned that if there is a catastrophe and if it's starting to make you look bad, you have to start lying about it. You have to blame others. You have to uh, offset the blame for what happened to you. You never apologize. You never admit any fault. And that theme has carried on through subsequent disasters, including the much worse one, which is happening this year in the United States in with the pandemic. Yeah, that first episode, though, I, I thought one of the other clear themes, and obviously this is what you're going for, I think, was that there really are two types of America. There's the America that that supported Donald Trump, that therefore Donald Trump supports back. Mm. And then, then there's the America that Donald Trump is happy to either ignore or vilify or outright attack if he feels it doesn't love him. Absolutely. And that and that is also something that you see mirrored now during the pandemic with, uh, you know, Donald Trump responded by saying with Hurricane Maria, it was fine. Our response was fantastic. And any problem that you may have noticed with the response and with the disaster is the responsibility of local authorities who are all Democrats. Mm. You know, the, the, the local governor is a Democrat the local mayor in the largest city in Puerto Rico, San Juan, is a Democrat, and it's their fault. It's got nothing to do with me. And you're now seeing exactly that with the pandemic. You're, you're seeing uh, early on in the pandemic, Donald Trump was sort of not paying much attention to it because it was hitting cities and states that, that are primarily Democratic cities and states. Mm. And now you're also seeing it with the um, the violence on the streets that they're seeing, uh, which is you know, tangentially related to the Black Lives Matter protests. People are sort of taking advantage of it to, to riot and protest and and cause mayhem in the streets. And Donald Trump is saying, that's not my responsibility, despite the fact that I'm the president. It's the responsibility of the Democratic mayors of the cities that this is happening in. And really, the first example of this happening was was Hurricane Maria. And that's the reason that I think it's this, it's this really important story to tell and to start with as well. And so what are some of the other major issues or major events that you're going to focus on? Because for me, I remember, you know, obviously the the election of Donald Trump was a shock to me and the rest of the world. You know, that's not surprising. But for the first couple of months of his presidency, I thought it was, you know, I, I thought there was... There was only so much bad one person could do and, and I wasn't too worried about it. The The moment that really struck me was uh, Charlottesville. That was the the moment that I, I remember just thinking, wow, this is way darker than I ever expected. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that about the first few months of the Donald Trump presidency because one of the extraordinary things that I've found in going back over this and, and when we decided which topics we would cover is that there's this, this period of time in basically in August and September of 2017 where until, uh, before then... Donald Trump has had, you know, it was sort of tweet of the day stuff and, you know, oh, what's Donald Trump saying today? You know, he's fired James Comey. My God, you know, what's that about? And the Mueller investigation started. It was all sort of insular things that, you know, Donald Trump, White House in chaos sort of thing. Mm. And then in August and September, all these things externally started happening that Donald Trump needed to figure out a way of dealing with. And uh, within these two months, you know, you had Charlottesville, the, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the Unite the Right white nationalist neo-Nazi Ku Klux Klan rally that Donald Trump uh, downplayed the severity of. You had Hurricane Maria. You had the mass shooting in Las Vegas, all happening at basically the same time. It was a real wake-up call, as you say, that Donald Trump can create chaos in the White House, but then when things happen outside of the White House, when things happen in the rest of America things can get much more serious. Oh, the other thing that happened at the exact same time was North Korea was launching missiles over Japan and Donald Trump was literally threatening to wipe them off the face of the earth with fire and fury mm. and totally destroy <laughs> North Korea. All these things are happening at the same time and it's, you know, just this extraordinary microcosm of all these things happening at once. And so a lot of our episodes are kind of about that two-month period. Uh, we are talking about, uh, you know, North Korea. We're talking about... Uh, Charlottesville. We're talking about mass shootings in the NRA. We're talking about Donald Trump's ways of that he has found of sort of siphoning money into his own pocket as president. But yeah, it, it's utterly bizarre how many of these things all happened at once. It's, mm. it's truly strange. 
When you were just going through that list and, and you mentioned that horrific shooting in, in Las Vegas, it blew my mind to think, oh, yeah, that happened. You know, mm. this has been such a hell of a ride of a pre- precedency that something so incredible is is forgotten just a few years later. Totally. And it, it, the fascinating thing about the way that we've approached this is because the way that the news works is, you know, a news story happens and then something unrelated happens. Like in that two-month period, you've got, uh, you know, the the Charlottesville rally. And before you can get your head around the implications of that and how it happened and why Donald Trump responded the way that he did, there's the mass shooting. And then before you can understand the ramifications of that and, uh, you know, Donald Trump's decision to actually challenge the NRA on bump stocks, before you can get your head around the significance of that, you've got to move on to are we all going to die in nuclear war Mm. and Mm. catastrophic hurricane in Puerto Rico. And so basically what we've done is taken you out of the, the timeline and just basically gone, here's this issue from start to finish ignoring every other issue. This is what would happen. You know, this, this is each episode is as though nothing else is happening in Donald Trump's presidency. It's just the story of hurricane Maria from beginning to end, and then just the story of Donald Trump's dealing with mass shootings from beginning to end. And when you when you when you look at it like that, you start to see these extraordinary things happening. Like Donald Trump, there was the there was the shooting in Las Vegas, and then four months later there was the Parkland massacre, which was this school shooting. And Donald Trump promised in the, in the wake of that to really aggressively take on the NRA over background checks. And Donald Trump's words were making sure that people who are mentally ill and on terrorist watch lists can't get high-powered guns, which sounds pretty wise. Anyway, the NRA is against that because they say that it will be a, a basically an excuse to put gun owners on a federal list and then they'll come and take your guns and that sort of thing. But Donald Trump was really serious about this. And he said, sometimes you have to fight the NRA and that's okay. This is a man who was elected with uh, the assistance of $30 million of NRA donations, uh, NRA advertising, basically. And the extraordinary thing is that he's, he's really putting the pressure on the NRA over this. At the same time as we now know, the NRA was imploding on itself. The NRA had a, a, a massive rift rip open when... Oliver North, you know, just another thing that you just forget, which is Oliver North from the famous uh, 1980s Iran-Contra scandal, became the president of the NRA. He came in and realised that the NRA was basically a massive scam where all of the uh, membership donations that were being given to the NRA, an enormous amount of it was basically going into the pocket of the CEO, Wayne Lapierre, and a few other select executives who are basically living this incredibly opulent lifestyle, going on holidays to the Bahamas four times a year, buying $250,000 worth of Italian suits and all these things and putting it on the NRA credit card. And Oliver North blew the whistle on this and the NRA board kind of ripped in two and there, there, there is now criminal investigations and the New York Attorney General uh, is trying to dismantle the entire NRA. And all of this was happening while Donald Trump was trying to push them on this policy. And the, the, the idea of these two things happening at the same time, you didn't realise it at the time because nobody knew about the chaos in the NRA. But now, the, now that we do, and we can look back at the fact that the NRA was having to deal with an implosion and a president they thought was their friend coming after them, uh, it was a close-run thing about whether Donald Trump would become the president to deliver gun reform in the United States, which, you know, would have been an extraordinary thing. But unfortunately, Donald Trump, Donald Trump is easily distracted. Mm. Well, that's what and, I was going to say. Um, and, and also yeah. very, very easy to manipulate by the sounds of it when in a room with, you know, someone who is a better negotiator than him, even though he's famously the, the deal maker that, that, mm. that he brags about, or is a strong man. He just, he, he will always kind of suck up to a strong man. Not only that, but he will also cave in the face of grief as well. Like that was what was happening with the, with the Parkland thing is he held this listening session with all of these you know, relatives of victims of this shooting and all these people are in the White House with him crying and screaming and asking him for reform. And he's like, oh, I guess I better do something about this, you know? Mm. Whereas, mm. Uh, it, you know, it's often said about Donald Trump that he takes the opinion of the last person he's spoken to. <laughs> yes. And that is uh, really something that you do find as we go, as we go through. 
you know, we've got an episode which is about Donald Trump's attempts to negotiate North Korea and Iran to give up their nuclear weapons. And it was the, the success and failure of that was entirely based on the people that happened to be around him at the time. It looked likely that he may actually succeed in certain things when he was surrounded by the so-called access of adults, which was uh, <laughs> people like Rex Tillis. That's amazing. I've never heard that. I've never heard that before. Uh, James Mattis and John Kelly and H.R. McMaster. And then basically in, in, in a matter of weeks, half of them left and were replaced by John Bolton, who basically has never seen a problem that he couldn't solve with a bomb. And uh, that was kind of at the point where any hope of finding a solution to the nuclear problems with North Korea and Iran evaporated. It, it, it's extraordinary the way that the the presidency has lurched from one place to another based on literally who just who Donald Trump talked to last. So you're saying he's not playing four-dimensional chess? No, he's not. No, I've, uh, I've watched Donald Trump extremely carefully and have found no evidence of four-dimensional chess. And the evidence of that is the lack of things that he has managed to achieve. Yeah. Even if you support Donald Trump's uh, agenda. So, for example, on uh, the border wall is a classic example. In, in, in the episode where we're going to talk about the, the child separation policy, which was this horrifying thing that happened in 2018, thousands of children were separated from their parents at the US border, some of whom were lost in the system and some of whom died. The, the, the way that we're approaching that episode is through the eyes of Ann Coulter, of all people, who is this uh, far-right, very hardline anti-immigration writer who Donald Trump, for various reasons, likes the opinion of and is, and, and, uh, is interested in impressing. And she is just, as, as Donald Trump's presidency progresses, is just tearing her hair out at Donald Trump's inability to succeed at the things that he claimed he was going to do and that she supported him because he claimed he was going to do, building the wall, you know, addressing immigration. Donald Trump has not achieved those things, uh, despite any claims of four-dimensional chess that you, you might want to make. It's extraordinary to see the way that she is so bitterly disappointed in this man for his inability to get anything done. Yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting to watch uh, the, the cheerleaders over at Fox News. Yeah. The way certain ones, uh, your Hannity's, have stayed loyal, have stayed true, mm. whereas others have have managed to start to see uh, chinks in the armor. Well, the, one of the fascinating things, and, and 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 the interesting thing about this podcast is, you're not going to hear very many Democrats speaking. This is a podcast that is about Donald Trump and the people around Donald Trump, and the, a lot, most of the commentary is coming from various Republicans and supporters of his. One of the interesting things is uh, Tucker Carlson, who is this very famous, uh, you know, very very powerful Fox News host. He is very supportive of Donald Trump's immigration policies, but he hates John Bolton. John Bolton, who is this, you know, hawkish guy who we're talking about loves bombing things. Mm. And Tucker Carlson disagrees with everything John Bolton stands for. And as soon as John Bolton was hired by Donald Trump, he just did segment after segment after segment about how insane it was that John Bolton was there and how terrible it was for the president's agenda and how John Bolton was war criminal, this mass murdering guy who got us into Iraq and he's going to get us into war with Iran and it'll be 10 times worse and, uh, and, and all this sort of thing. And, and Tucker Carlson just did segment after segment after segment about how you just need to get rid of this guy. Eventually Donald Trump did and then turned on him in many different ways. But yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch the way that Donald Trump's allies have viewed his presidency as it has gone along. Having said that, most of them have decided now that the best solution for their policies and for their uh, view of the way that America should run is that Donald Trump stays in, in, in power. And so they have swung in behind him again, the 2020 election. So any criticisms that they had of the way that he ran his first term have evaporated as they imagine a world without him as president. I mean, I, I don't suppose this is something you, you focus on in, this, in the podcast itself, but just watching, and, and I know you're a broadcaster for Radio National, so you cover this quite a bit. Is it terrifying? I don't know if, if that's the right word, but just how clearly you can see a pattern from Tucker Carlton says something one night or Fox and Friends say something one morning 
and it becomes a tweet storm later that day. It, you know, it, it seems like the most, you know, you just said earlier that Trump tends to listen to the last person that spoke to him. And so often the last person that spoke to him is the widescreen TV in oh, his room. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. It's interesting though. What I've tried to do a lot is is stay away from the tweets. I don't think we talk about his tweets at all. Probably good for your mental health. Yeah, well, but the thing the thing is about the tweets is that it's 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 a gut reaction. It's Donald Trump's gut reaction. The interesting thing about Donald Trump's gut reaction is you will often find that as soon as Donald Trump is presented with something he doesn't really understand or he doesn't really know about, he will give his honest opinion about how he feels about it. You come to Donald Trump with, say, it looks like Saudi Arabia may have murdered Jamal Khashoggi in in their Istanbul consulate, and Donald Trump's immediate reaction is, well, it seems like they've screwed up royally there and uh, there seems to be some sort of a cover-up going on. And then the doors swing open and Jared runs in. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, Jared, and you know, the following, you know, just two hours later, Donald Trump will be giving another press conference once it's been explained to him that maybe <laughs> we need to stay on the side of, of the Saudis here and it'll be like, oh, maybe, maybe the, the Crown Prince had nothing to do with it. Maybe it was a rogue operation that had nothing to do with the royal family or uh, that sort of thing. It's, it's fascinating. And I think the tweets are often the way that Donald Trump, his gut feeling comes out in a tweet because he'll see something on television, he tweets it immediately. But the thing that you see when you look at his presidency long term is so many of the things he tweets do not come to fruition. They don't happen. Because he'll tweet something and then someone will have to get in his ear and go, actually, our policy is the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are the reasons why you should think the opposite. Or they will say, uh, look, we can try, but what you're suggesting is illegal because you haven't thought about it because you just saw something on TV and tweeted about it. Yeah. So what we're trying to do as much as possible is focus on what happened mm. with Donald Trump, not what he said was going to happen, but what actually happened. And that's the, you know, obviously that's the advantage of looking back at the presidency in hindsight rather than covering it as it happened, which I also did. You know, I was covering Trump's presidency every day, but the advantage is that when you look back on it, things often look very different. And stories that you think were obvious and cut and dry, gradually, if you look at it in hindsight, often are a bit more complicated. And I, I, I won't go right into it here, but, for example, the story of Otto Warmbier. No re- recollection. Yeah, so Otto Warmbier was a um, a college student who took a trip to North Korea during the Obama presidency and was taken hostage by the North Korean government and disappeared for about a year and a half and then was returned to the United States in a, a coma, which he then died from. And the response to that initially was that North Korea had tortured him and beaten him into a coma and they were a brutal regime that needed to be punished. And Donald Trump saying, you know, I'm the genius who managed to get him out. Obama never could manage this. But when you look at it in hindsight, there's a lot more to it than that. And the way that he was ex- extricated and, this, and and what had happened to him in North Korea was a lot more complicated than the way it was initially covered. Yeah, I mean, that, that's fascinating for me because I, I mainline, you know, 20 hours of, of Trump news a day and, and I mm. have no recollection at, of that at all. So I, I can't wait to hear that. Um, I, I did want to ask, though, what is the tone of the podcast? Because the first couple of seasons of Russia Review Listening had a really fascinating tone that I loved. It was kind of part spy thriller, part kind of bumbling detective uh, story. Like there, there was, the, it was like the dumbest people in the world were somehow successfully pulling off the, the, the greatest heist in the world. Um, and that mm. was some of the charm of it. Um, is, what, what kind of tone can we expect from America if you're listening? It, it sort of varies, I guess, a bit more because it's hard to look at mass shootings in a bumbly, stumbly way yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Hurricane Maria. Having said that, there is a lot of, you know, you will discover a lot of very... Uh, interesting characters as we come along and you know the the way that you know for example with hurricane maria we do kind of go into that tone a little bit when it comes to the absolute catastrophe that was the outsourcing process of trying to find private companies to come in and rebuild puerto rico Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because basically they they put it out 
to the lowest bidder. And, you know, we need to fix the grid. The, the electricity grid of Puerto Rico is completely destroyed. We need someone to fix it. Uh, who can do it for the, for the lowest price? But they didn't actually do that much due diligence into the people who won the contracts. And you ended up with situations like this guy got a contract to rebuild Puerto Rico's grid, a $300 million contract, and he had two employees. And like there's another another lady who put in a bid to provide 30 million hot meals to Puerto Rico. Or it might have been 300 million. I'm not sure. And But millions and millions of hot meals were supposed to be de- 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 delivered to Puerto Rico. And she had no staff at all and no concept of how she was going to do it when she won the bid. Mm. Uh, and so she sort of, she called a wedding catering company <laughs> and uh, and they were like, oh, yeah, we could help you out. And she then called a charity and tried to sort of get a food bank to try and rustle up millions of hot meals. She had absolutely no way of doing it and, and didn't even come close. She provided 500,000 cold meals, which didn't even get provided to, to, to Puerto Rico. She sort of had them in a warehouse when the government realised how completely uh, inept she was and went and cancelled her contract. But the extraordinary thing is that she gets, you know, she to the, someone went and interviewed her and she was like, look, I, I offered a price and uh, I, I thought I'd be able to do it. Hmm. <laughs> And, you know, it seems like the government never really checked. My, I feel like I've taken far too much of your time, but I've got a couple of more oh, questions. Look, you know. And these aren't related to the show at all. But Pandemic I just want time, to... I'm at home. I've got my own suit. <laughs> anyway, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, as long as my cat doesn't um, start clawing me, I think I'll be fine too. Mm. But some of the things I'm sure, like just because of, of the, the timing, uh, how many episodes have you done so far? Uh, so I've written seven and we've produced two completely, two more nearly done and then the others still need to be done. But yeah, so yep. I've, I've, I've yep. written, I'm seven ahead of, of I've, I've written seven scripts, Fantastic. is basically. Yeah. <laughs> so well, yeah, I mean, I, obviously you, your your scope here is looking back. So, so I think that these questions won't be coming up on your podcast, but, but I'm just fascinated anyway, and I rarely get a mm. chance to chat to you, so I'm going to do it. Much to the um, anger of my friends, I sat down and watched the entire RNC convention. Oh, okay. There you go. There's a commitment for you. Again, you know, what else can you do? There's coronavirus. So so I watched it all. What, what were some of the takeaways that you saw about his pitch to uh, to, to be re-elected? And, and, and are there things that you saw on stage or from other, com- uh, from other people there that kind of relate back to some of the stories or some of the themes you've picked up on during the, the recording of this season? Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, I mean, there's a lot of everything's fine. Just leave me alone. Uh, stop asking questions about it. Fake, fake news. Um, you know, uh, when it comes to, and they they pay relatively little attention to the you know, once in a hundred year catastrophe crisis that has enveloped their entire country for this year, which is the COVID nineteen pandemic. Yeah, they it was pay- even spoken about in the past tense. Yeah, yeah, it's happened. It's done now. It's- um, you know, it's dealt with and uh, it's time to, you know, get on with it and uh, four more years and it's going to be great. That will work on a lot of people. I've I've interviewed uh, a number of people for the podcast and one of the people I've spoken to who's a Trump supporter said, look, he, he, everything was going great. Then Corona happened and everything is not going great, but we need Donald, we, we need to give Donald Trump another four years so that he can get us back to where we were mm. at the start of 2020 because that was great. And that's what I think a lot of his supporters feel. But the interesting thing about about the messaging is that it was very clear who he is talking to. He's not talking to rural America because he's confident of their vote. His messaging is focused on the suburban rings around large cities. All the stuff he said about black people and 
minorities and and women is not I, I got the impression that it wasn't so much about trying to get minorities to vote for him because I don't think that he thinks that they will. Mm. It was kind of about giving people a an out when they feel like, you know, there's all these arguments being made that Donald Trump is racist. Donald Trump is a racist, misogynist, and you can't vote for him. Even if you agree with his policies, you can't vote for him because he's a racist. Yeah, and it was it was the permission structure. That's... It was, yeah, exactly. It was a permission structure for white people who may not be racist, who like his policies, feel like his strong economy is doing well, that a good stock market is good for their family, and they're worried about violence in the streets and they feel like Donald Trump is going to take care of that. It was giving them a moral permission to go and vote for Donald Trump because he's not really a racist. Look at look at all this stuff he's saying about the great stuff he's done for black people. Yeah, yeah, and that that's what I felt as well, and 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 I'm worried that that will actually work, uh, especially the 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 stuff about say Portland, um, the the violence in Portland or the violence in whatever new city he decides to to um, highlight, is that one of the things that is so fascinating about Americans is, you know, everyone knows that Americans don't really travel unless they're, uh, they're boomers and they're retired, then they might go to Europe. But for, for the vast majority of Americans don't even have passports. And so they don't travel, but they don't even travel within their own country. And so you can speak mm. to someone who is in, in Las Vegas, that's a four hour drive to Portland and they've never been in their life. They've never left, uh, the, the state of Nevada. They might've gone to California once. Um, mm. Disneyland. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> They've gone to a fake part of America in another state, um, and it, and it's really fascinating that that's where I think that that argument might work is that uh, if all you ever do is watch Fox News and all you ever do is listen to, to Trump, then you might be able to see things happening in other cities and just think that it is a completely different world that's coming for you. Look, Matt, I, I'm I, I'm not really in a position to comment on what will and will not work with the electorate. I have no idea. And, you know, 2016 proved yep. that trying to yep. predict things is 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 folly. But I, I think this comes back a little bit to 4D chess argument. Obviously, that's what Donald Trump thinks will work. But I don't know that he has any more deep insight into what will and won't work than the Democrats. Mm. And mm. the thing you have to remember about 2016 is that Donald Trump didn't think he was going to win. Well, that was going to be my next question, but go on. Yeah, well, he didn't think he was going to win, you know, and, and there's, you know, there's a huge number of reports from inside his inner circle on election night. Basically, you know, there's, there's about 10 different books that have people who've talked about what happened that night. There's all these people who talk about when it became clear that Trump was going to win, the, the, the colour drained from his face. And Melania, his wife, was angry at him for having won. This is not what we planned on. We planned on running to build the brand. We are a brand. There's the Trump brand. We wanted to build the brand. And, you know, somewhere along the way, we accidentally won this election. Now, I don't, you know, obviously I wasn't in the room and I've never spoken to Donald Trump, so I don't know whether that's true, but that's what all these reports have said about him. And the, th the other thing is that you have to remember that in 2016, there were all these elements working in his favour that have now evaporated. You had Hillary Clinton, who was unpopular for many reasons. You know, she was seen as part of this Clinton group, this Clinton political machine. You know, some people thought that they were full-on murderers, but I think everybody sort of had this feeling that there was something a little bit, yeah, a bit icky about the Clintons. You know, they mm. take these enormous, this enormous amount of money for speaking tours, and they do all these weird things with Wall Street. And Bill Clinton was kind of a creepy guy in in hindsight, but none of that, none of that is the case with with Biden. They're attacking him, saying he's old, and he's senile, and he is uh, being basically a puppet. He's being puppeteered by. Mm the far left. And it, there's no real indication that those things are sticking with the electorate. Uh, and additionally, Trump was assisted by an enormous Facebook campaign, Facebook misinformation campaign. Facebook has tightened up their controls on that. He was assisted by people like Steve Bannon, who is gone. Whatever you think of Steve Bannon, he was, he, he tapped into some part of the American electorate that nobody thought existed, but he's gone. He's not mm -hmm. only exile, exiled from Trump world, he's been arrested. And there are all these elements that, that went in his favour in 2016, including the fact that Hillary Clinton was so convinced that she was going to win that she didn't even 
campaign in a number of key states. Yeah. Joe Biden's not making those mistakes. So he can't win again by repeating the trick that he pulled in 2016. He needs new tricks. And that may work for him. Absolutely. I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that Donald Trump will lose. But if he does win, it will be for different reasons than in 2016. And he doesn't have the element of surprise. And a lot of the people around him are no longer there. Mm. They're in jail. A lot of, an enormous number of people involved in the 2016 campaign are in jail. And it's unclear whether the people that have replaced them are as savvy, wily, clever operators. Absolutely. And it's so much easier to be a troll and say, this current government sucks, Obama sucks, you know, you want to go back to the good times. Totally. Uh, it's really hard to pull that message off, even though he's trying, when you are the president. It's really hard to say, this country sucks, we need to... Yeah, it's hard to say, make America great again, when you've had four years. You, you know, you're halfway through the full amount of time that is available to you as president. Mm. And, you know, people are looking around them, and they don't feel like it's great. You know, they're, they're terrified of this pandemic, that at least uh, uh, some people blame Donald Trump for, you know, there's polling that suggests that a majority of Americans do not like the way that Donald Trump has handled the pandemic. And a majority of Americans do not like the direction the country is going in. Mm. And that's why there's this guy, Alan Lichtman, who is a historian, not a political commentator, but a historian who has studied all of these elections or, or every American election back to 1860 and looked at the elements that were in play and figured out a method which he thinks, based on history, works to predict elections. And he's done that successfully for the last uh, 20 or 30 years. He's managed to predict every election, including Donald Trump's. And uh, he doesn't base any of his stuff on polling. He bases it on things like, is the economy currently strong? Does the economy have a good long-term outlook? Do you have a charismatic candidate? All these sort of things. There's 13 different things that he analyzes it on. And he says, based on his analysis at the moment, unless the pandemic is miraculously fixed or unless the economy miraculously bounces back in the next 60 days, Donald Trump will lose. You know, he's got a track record of being right on these things. Mm. So following the ups and downs of polling is tempting because it's the the best science we have. You know, the only thing we have uh, in terms of trying to predict the future. But Alan Lickman was on uh, Radio National Breakfast with Frank Kelly and uh, he was quite forthright in him saying, in saying, ignore the polls, stop looking at the polls, just ignore them. These are the things that matter. You're in an economic crisis and you have a, you know, a situation where people fear for their safety they don't feel like the, the the country is going in a good direction. And so Donald Trump, the, the, but not Donald Trump will lose, but there will be a change of government is basically what he says. In these conditions, in all of US history, right back to 1860, including civil war, world wars, uh, another pandemic, multiple economic crashes, uh, a Great Depression. These are the factors that always predict an election. They will again, and he says that Donald Trump will lose. <laughs> now, I, I certainly wouldn't bet any money on that. I but, wouldn't um, either. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, like, I, I love hearing that. That makes me feel a little bit better in my soul. But um, and, and until the SDNY walks him out of the White, Office, uh, White House in, in handcuffs, I'll be a little bit terrified. Uh, and that's that's what I was going to get to. And obviously, you're not going to, you're a professional news broadcaster, so you can't um, editorialize like I just did. But just back to that point that all accounts say that he never wanted to be president. He was shocked when he accidentally won. That's what I find really fascinating about watching him this time is that he had all the mojo last time because he didn't think he would win. So anything was worth saying, anything was worth giving a shot at because who cares? You're not going to win anyway. And then this time around, it feels like he feels like he needs to win mm. because there are so many open indictments or sealed indictments waiting for him. Um, that will that will run out the clock if he gets another four years and and again of course I have no knowledge of that and uh, no evidence of that um, but it just that is one of those fascinating narratives to kind of see this election through the the stakes are incredibly high for him because as you say there are all these investigations there are investigations into his inaugural committee there's investigations into you know you've got to remember that Michael Cohen his personal lawyer is sitting in jail at the moment for a crime that Donald Trump instructed him to commit, you know, and, and, and has received a custodial sentence for that. And that is waiting for him. There's a million different things that are waiting for him, including trying to take 
control of his company again in a time where with the amount of effort that he appears to be going to to try and drum up business for his his company as he has been in office it kind of indicates that his company maybe isn't doing all that well and you know i i, I have no real insight into that but it's it's unclear exactly what life looks like for donald trump and his family if he loses and i don't think he wants that yet and he just, I, I just, I would imagine as well as, as, as such a possible narcissist, the, the idea of losing would just be such an, a, a huge blow to him if he didn't want to lose. Like if he loses because he wants to in 2016, then he's a genius mastermind. But if, it, but if he puts all his effort into it and loses, then that, that would hurt. A loss for him in 2016 would have been fabulous for mm, him, yeah. honestly. It would have been the best outcome for him, uh, his, his business possible yeah. because you'd have this enormous new base of people who are fanatical supporters of you who feel like you were robbed in the election and are willing to, you know, back you as the leader of a, a political movement. Meanwhile, you're unencumbered by the necessity to be the president of the United States and deal with all the problems that that comes with hmm. and all the congressional investigations that that comes with. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Uh, it really, I think I think it long term for him. I mean, uh, he may be having a ball being the president, but being the president looks really hard. Mm. And he seems to uh, <laughs> he seems to be having a hard time doing it as well. You know, in terms of actual making success out of the things that he wanted to do, he hasn't had all that much success. And that's the interesting, and it's the fascinating thing about Donald Trump. If you look at Donald Trump as a as a person compared to a generic Republican, so say that Mike Pence was the president. How different would America be if Mike Pence was the president with all the exact same policies as Donald Trump? Mike Pence, who is more inclined to believe medical experts, who is less inclined to dive into any culture war that is brewing and available to him, who by all accounts works extremely hard at his job and isn't addicted to watching Fox News all the time. How much more success would Donald Trump's policies have had if they were being run by Mike Pence or or, or, or or Paul Ryan or another Republican who is a more experienced president and a more experienced politician and keener to get things done rather than just engage in culture wars and um, – more able to bring people around you who know what they're doing. Or like you said earlier, if, if, even if Trump just didn't fire every adult in the room and, and just went off and did his little culture wars on the side, but let government actually run. Yeah, totally. And, but the, the thing is that even, even with the, Republican, uh, the Republicans in Congress, like there's, there's a number of them that are really hardcore supporters of his, but there's a lot of them that in terms of their policy positions, they tolerate him because what they want is him to approve conservative judges mm. and him to occasionally pass tax cuts. But in terms of their broader political agenda, it's been completely overtaken by Donald Trump's culture war agenda. And, you know, they, they paid a price at the 2018 midterm elections and it's possible that they're going to pay a if If Donald Trump loses here, you know, say that the polls that the way they are at the moment play out and Donald Trump loses the popular vote by 10 points and loses, uh, you know, most of the swing states, that would be catastrophic for the Republican Party, so bad for the Republican Party because not only would they lose the presidency, they may lose the Senate, they will not gain the House of Representatives. That seems extremely unlikely. And potentially they will lose a number of state houses and state governorships. Whereas had Hillary Clinton won, just won mm. in 2016, they may have a really good chance of knocking her off here in 2020, running into the census, which is all important in America because Every 10 years, they take the census and they use the census to redraw all the congressional boundaries. And whoever is in charge in state government gets to draw all the congressional boundaries and go just wild with gerrymandering. And that's potentially something that the Democrats are going to be able to have the opportunity to do if the election plays out the way 
that the polls indicate it will, and that could be devastating for the Republican Party's long-term agenda. And all they've really got out of Donald Trump is a is a big tax cut and a lot of judges, which yeah. they love, those two things. But potentially in terms of a long-term agenda, it may not be great for the Republican Party as it existed in 2015. You know, by the same token, I think that they almost need this this refresh uh, because they've been, they've been following this kind of populism, this racism, uh, they've been playing around with it for such a long time now. It feels like that they, that they need this dramatic loss to to realise what the party was supposed to be about. That's just my thoughts. And for my very personal friends, that's why I can't stop looking away, even though you tell me it's unhealthy. All right, the, the final question. You've been here far too long. I've wondered about um, in the post-Trump era, are we seeing Australian politicians or politicians in general more willing to lie on, you know, people always say, well, you know, politicians, they're, they're always lies, blah, blah, blah. You know, I've always thought the politicians have been great at stretching the truth or ignoring questions or that kind of thing. But it feels like in this modern era, we're seeing polit- politicians quite happily say statements that are easily Googleable and disproven. Yeah, look, undoubtedly politicians are trying it. But whether it works or not is a big question. The, you know, one of the big uh, experiments really was uh, the Victorian state election uh, a couple of years ago where Matthew Guy really ran a Trump-style campaign. Mm. It's all about law and order and uh, culture war stuff and, and never uh, admitting fault and never apologising, most importantly. That's the most important Trump rule. Never, ever, ever, ever apologise. And it didn't work for Matthew Guy. It lost that election resoundingly. And I think that lesson has been taken a bit by the rest of the politicians around the country. Uh, Like you don't see Deb Frecklington in Queensland running that kind of campaign. You didn't see that kind of campaign run in the Northern Territory and the South Australian government and the New South Wales governments and the Tasmanian governments, which are all Liberal governments, are not resorting to that at all. And in the time of the pandemic, uh, the governments in the state governments have all been quite honest about the way that everything's run and, and honest about it and everybody is getting a big bump out of it, the way that they've handled the pandemic mm. in terms of their popularity. And that's regardless of party, really. I don't know whether it will have a long-term effect, I guess is the the short answer to your question, because a lot of people have tried Trumpism since Trump did it, but it's had mixed results. I guess, yeah, as a Victorian, I I do see that there are still some remnants of the Matthew Guy uh, Liberal Party floating about on Twitter uh, that are still trying their absolute best to be mini Trumps. But yeah, like you said, it doesn't seem to be getting much traction. The majority of the responses I see, at least, uh, to say... I won't name them, but but to, to certain politicians who try that, that that kind of tact is a lot of derision. So like you said, yeah, it feels like the most politicians around the country realise that this is not the time for, for that kind of thing. Slightly more leadership is what the, what the moment deserves. Having said that, we are in the, the, the 2020 is a golden age for misinformation. You know, 2016 Trump style misinformation online you, you you browse around your face your facebook feed particularly but also on twitter and people will say lots of things that are not true mm. um on both sides of politics about their political opponents in order to smear them and you're seeing that a lot in australia where people uh whether they are big supporters of you know particularly you see it in victoria where people who are either big supporters of dan andrews or people who are big opponents of dan andrews will post and post and post and post and post and it doesn't matter whether what they're saying is true or not or accurate or there's just enormous amount of misinformation going on yeah. and I, that may be with us Fair enough. for some time. Yeah, well, I mean, regardless of my personal uh, leanings, I, I, I tweet about uh, tracksuit pants and Pokemon, so um, <laughs> I try to stay out of that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's, it's better for everybody's mental health if you don't pay too much attention to it. <laughs> I think so, I think so. Well, once again, you've... Uh, you've been far too generous with your time, Matt. I'm really, really looking forward to it. I thought that first episode really did balance the 
the the material so well because like you said you can't you know there's only so much playfulness that you can have in a story that is that has so much real tragedy built into it um but but there was there was a Beautiful line there, and I'm sure that part of that is uh, your excellent producers that uh, we should give a shout-out to. Yes, Will and Yaz, uh, Will Ockenden and Yasmin Parry have been extremely... Uh, well, the, the, at the moment, they're, they're working on three podcasts at once, kind of, at the moment. They're working on Trace, uh, which is, of course, this excellent podcast from Rachel Brown uh, about the second season, which is all about Nicola Gobbo and her side of the Lawyer X scandal story. Yaz, Yasmin has been working on that. And Will, at the same time, is working on Coronacast, which is this fabulous, enormously successful podcast, uh, has really made Norman Swan a household name mm. around the country. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it has been you know become a really important part of the way a lot of people wake up and try and get real good, solid information about, about the virus. Uh, but, yeah, Will and Yaz, they are doing their best to, to find some time to, <laughs> to put together uh, my, uh, my little very long, long-form storytelling about Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> well, I'm glad they find the time because, yeah, I've, I've spoken to both Rachel and to Tegan and to Norman as well. Uh, and so those podcasts are in your feed if you're, if you're listening to this episode. But, yes, uh, w- what a fantastic uh, little studio you've got going over there. Yeah. Well, many studios. We don't, um, <laughs> we're not in one studio anymore. No, and and many of them are now uh, lounge rooms and laundries and, and I, I would imagine in bedrooms. Totally. I've uh, literally, uh, Will and Yaz, we've been producing this podcast. I have not seen them since March. Yep. Uh, but we've made the entire podcast uh, remotely from our spare rooms, basically. Strange time we live in, isn't it? It really is. It really is. Well, thank you once again. And yeah, well, hopefully I'll speak to you the next time you've got a podcast coming out or even sooner. <laughs> that would be nice as well. Thanks, Peter. Anytime. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Well, if you've made it this far, congratulations. That was a long one, longer than I would normally do uh, an episode of Meta, but once I start talking about Don- Donald Trump, it's really hard to get me to shut up, and I believe Matt Bevan is probably the same. Uh, so thanks again to Matt for all of his uh, patience there in, in answering all of my questions. This Thursday, I have another episode coming out. I don't exactly know which one it'll be yet, because uh, based on what happened over the weekend, I decided to uh, to move this episode forward. So I don't think I'm going to spoil them anymore. I'm just going to say that, look, I've got a great bunch of episodes recorded and some amazing guests in my calendar. Uh, so please tell a friend to listen to Meta if you're liking the show. And if you are, please rate and review it on iTunes as well. That helps a lot of people find the show. Oh, it's not called iTunes anymore, is it? It's Apple Podcast. Uh, if you have access to Apple Podcast, please get on in there and flick a couple of stars my way. Artwork by the wonderful Lauren Watson. Sound mentoring by the gorgeous James Smith. And special thanks to the good people at the Acast office up in Sydney for convincing me to make this show. I love you all. I'll speak to you on Thursday. Have a great one. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.